Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Diane Orson in remotely for Lucy Nalpathanchel. What is it like to lead a religious congregation amid a pandemic that's upended so much, including one of the most intimate aspects of our lives? faith and worship. The past nine months or so have been such a roller coaster. Churches, synagogues, mosques have had to close. What new ways have faith leaders found to gather with their communities? What's it been like to offer guidance and inspiration amid the ongoing strain of the coronavirus? Here via Zoom to talk about this and more are three faith leaders from Connecticut. Rafai Arafin is Imam of the Islamic Association of Greater Hartford, also known as the Berlin Mosque in Berlin, Connecticut. Stacy Offner is Rabbi of Temple Beth Tikva in Madison, Connecticut. And Dr. Jerry Streets is Senior Pastor at Dixwell Congregational Church in New Haven and former chaplain at Yale University. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. Well, what a moment. What a year. Dr. Streets, let me uh, start with you, and I'd love to hear from all of you on this question. How has the coronavirus challenged the way that you lead your congregation? Well, uh, thank you, Diane, and it's good to be with your listening audience and with my colleagues. As members of a a helping profession, we see ourselves, this is a curtain, uh, how I see myself, and I think I share this view with my colleagues, as facilitating wellness of people and contributing to their sense of, of healing and wholeness, and also helping them to discern what, uh, what meaning they have for, for living. And so when we do this through mediating through sacred texts and rituals and, and the traditions of our faith, we try to help people to better understand themselves and their relationship to God and to one another. And what I found in this situation of a pandemic, that uh, we are trying to help people discern the meaning of, of living in the context of a profound trauma, grief, and, and, and mourning, and the temporary loss of our spacious spaces and, and places for worship and, and for fellowship. And so I've had to be mindful of my own, what the literature would call compassion, fatigue, burnout, <laughs> vicarious trauma, um, feeling the same kinds of things that people who have been traumatized by the pandemic uh, have, have gone through, and to address my own uh, awareness and needs for self-care as I attempt to reach out and, and help others, which for me has meant creating a whole alternative uh, ways of, of connecting through uh, weekly Zoom meetings with the congregation, online worship services, weekly topic discussions that the members tune in through via Zoom, uh, those kinds of, of, of activities that keep people uh, connected. And what's, what I'm sensing is a whole new model of ministry being uh, being forged as a result of responding to the pandemic that will have some implications for 
how we minister after the pandemic crisis has abated. Well, that's fascinating. Imam Arafin, do you want to add anything? Uh, definitely. First off, I'd like to thank you, Diane, for the opportunity, and, and uh, I'd like to welcome all of the listeners. Um, I want to echo what Reverend Streets mentioned. You know, my experience has been really similar. The, the role of faith leaders is to really touch upon deeper issues as to an individual's purpose in life, uh, the deeper meanings of things, uh, and, and trying to find wisdom, um, even when the circumstances kind of dictate um, that it can get lost along the way. And so an experience like COVID, I mean, going through the challenges that people are going through uh, can be difficult on the individual level, but it can also be a challenge for the faith leaders and trying to instill that sense of perspective and at the same time be a source of strength uh, for the community. Um, there are limitations that we're dealing with. We have fewer in-person interactions um, there's less opportunity to really just be present in a physical way uh, during times of grief or during times of trauma. And so we've, tr we've had to be creative in, in reaching out, being proactive and reaching the congregation and making sure that we're there while at the same time maintaining our own bandwidth um, and having the emotional intelligence to, to tackle a situation that's constantly evolving. So it's been a challenge for us, but at the same time, I think it's, it's also forced us to be more creative. And that's been a good thing. Rabbi Offner, do you want to talk about ways that you've been creative at Temple Beth Tikva to bring people together? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, Temple Beth Tikva actually is uh, Hebrew. It's Hebrew for House of Hope. And uh, we don't have the house right now, but it gives more space for the hope. And that's what we need. And that's a, a gift that we have to, to share with our communities. And, you know, even right now, visiting with you, this is an opportunity that this pandemic has has afforded i feel so so blessed to be with colleagues here who are um have such spiritual depth and uh, ability to care for others and have vision for their communities and you know I, if i i think we all have different religious backgrounds but religion all together i think is about opening our eyes and the, the, the opposite of religious isn't secular. The opposite of religious is perfunctory. It's missing out. It's, it's not seeing. And this pandemic has caused us to see and to see what's, what's really important in our lives and most profound in our lives. And we, I mean, if we ever were uh, guilty or, or I was ever guilty as a religious leader of being perfunctory in my service leadership. That, that's no go right now. That can't happen because uh, everything is creative. Everything is, is new, which means everything is, is extraordinarily challenging, but also, I have to say, ultimately exhilarating. Uh, to be with my congregation on a screen that, that, that my entire community 
can can be found in my I don't know what is it six by eight screen. Um, in some ways, it, it, it's amazing. It's just a miracle to to experience that kind of being together, even as we know there is no way it takes the place of that personal physical touch and hug and and we yearn and hope for for the ability to touch each other physically to to return speedily and in our days we say biyamim biyamenu Rabbi Offner, I'd like to ask you a question, and then I'd actually like to address this to all of our guests today. Could you tell us a little bit about your congregation and maybe some of the unique challenges that you found connecting with your community at this time? Uh, our, our congregation, one of the things that's unique about our congregation is that we had, before the pandemic, we were undertaking a a, a, a massive uh, renovation of our physical structure. So we were planning not to be, how not to be in our sanctuary in any case. And then it coincided with the pandemic, which certainly has its own uh, challenges to be sure to be doing a, a, a renovation during this period of time. but. It, it's been um, it, unique for us that, that we, don't, we don't have a sanctuary. We don't have a sanctuary to, to return to right now. And so um, it's, it's caused us to look at, at space in a new way. And even as we're building a physical space, we're looking anew because there's no going back. We're, we, we can't go backwards in time. In some ways, I think I look back to when we would have a service in a physical building at a particular time and date and place and expect people to show up and um, and not even take into consideration that people can't just show up. And um, going forward, we're gonna have to be a hybrid of, of being physically together and continuing to allow people the opportunity to come together people who are who are homebound or who are ill or who don't drive or you know for for a countless number of reasons who can't show up physically uh, they're now included and that's a wonderful thing dr streets can you tell us about your community yeah, I, I echo the similar thoughts as uh, Rabbi Offner. Uh, we are seeing for us an emergence of a kind of, of a, not a kind, but of a hybrid ministry, unlike some other congregations who have been involved in uh, media ministries, YouTube and recording. This is fairly new for us. And so we have a small, those who are participating in worship weekly, usually around four or five people, we go into the sanctuary and record the service for the upcoming Sunday. And I find myself uh, having to use my imagination differently, speaking to a space that's empty of people, but yet I have to communicate uh, feelings of, of thought and, and ideas about, uh, you know, through the sermons and music and all of that. Uh, and we know that we have to continue an, an online presence uh, after this the crisis is, is, has abated because we have a significant number of people who are not, uh, as Rabbi said, uh, easily 
uh, and they're going to be cautious about coming back to church for quite a while because of the impact of of COVID and questions about the vaccine. So we don't see any large numbers of people returning to the physical space uh, anytime soon. Dixwell is about 110, 15 people, small congregation, relatively speaking. It's the oldest African-American congregational church in the known world, founded in New Haven in hmm. 1820. And a significant number of our members are, are um, mature elderly. <laughs> their 80s and 90s. Our oldest active member is 105, wow. um, who has had two bouts of COVID and has licked Oof. it. <laughs> Uh, so we we find ourselves um, reaching out more to them because people, some people in that generation are not tech savvy. And so we found the need to um, partner them with their grandchildren and with uh, younger people who will help them to, to learn and to use the uh, technology uh, so that when we do have the weekly Zoom meetings or the weekly worship services, they can they can uh, tune into it. I didn't realize that, that flip phones were still in existence until this happened. We have a number of members who still have the old flip phones. And, um, but on the other end, I've had Zoom meetings with the, with the youth of the church, and they're just the opposite. They, they're so tech savvy that it's, it's easy to organize a meeting with them and to, to be involved in a conversation with them to stay connected. So this digital divide is is part of the challenge that we uh, that we are, we are also we're also facing. Imam Arafin, I remember when we met for the first time virtually, one of the things that was so striking to me when you described your congregation is that it's quite young. Absolutely. I think one of the unique things about our congregation um, is just its diversity. I mean, we serve about three to 400 families, um, even though there are many, many other mosques in the state of Connecticut. Um, I like to think that people make a choice to come and to attend our services because we speak about matters that are relevant to all ages. And so as a result, we've kind of cultivated a very, very young population that attends our mosque. Um, and even though that's been one of our main sources of strength, it's also posed a, a great challenge because in order to reach such a young population, there are a few things that we have to consider. Um, it's, and it really comes down to three things. You know, in order to reach a, a younger population, you have to think about accessibility, relevancy, and relatability. You know, and one of the things that we had done even before the COVID crisis is that we had already cultivated a social media presence. We made sure that we had a page on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, because young people are not on Facebook anymore, right? right. So you have to make sure you reach them where they are. TikTok. Um, not yet. We, we still work on that. You know? I might have to brush up on my dancing skills, but, but that's something to consider. Um, and it's and it can't just be it can't just be lip service. You have to speak about issues that are relevant to young people. And so when there were social justice issues that came up over the last few months, I received, I was just inundated with messages, telephone calls, text messages from young people in the community say, well, what is the mosque going to do? When are you guys going to say something? Um, what's the plan? What's the platform? And, and it was a challenge for us because we absolutely wanted to talk about uh, issues that are affecting 
uh, our community and affecting others in society uh, and matters of common concern, matters of social justice. Um, but at the same time, we wanted to make sure, well, how do we address this can of worms? How do we do it without upsetting or offending anybody? Uh, and, and, and I think the sincerity and, 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 I don't know, keeping it real is something that young people really appreciate. And we've been able to do that through, through Zoom, through social media videos, through more frequent posts. And as a result, um, I think our level of engagement with young people has actually increased through the COVID crisis rather than decreased because they're, they're able to find that religion is relevant in their day-to-day -day life in a way that perhaps they hadn't examined when it was just a matter of going to the mosque for service once a week because they're getting that constant engagement. Uh, I'm curious, uh, Imam Arifin, um, what's this been like for you? For me, it's been it's been overwhelming. To be frank, um, it, it it has been overwhelming. Um, quite simply, because our community serves so many people, um, and I'm not sure that we necessarily have that bandwidth. Because at the Berlin Mosque, it's just me, right? And and so we're all pulled in different ways. Uh, I also practice law as an attorney, um, and. There, there are so many needs in the community that that have to be met by the faith leader. Um, in a way, it can't be substituted by anyone else. So when you get that call that there's been a death in the community, um, it has to be you who reaches out to the family who's there, uh, either physically or 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 or, or in spirit, uh, in order to provide support, in order to uh, be a part of their grief and to share it with them. And so there's a time com component that's challenging, but on a deeper level, there's also an emotional component that's also challenging because we're dealing with the same challenges and pressures that everybody else is dealing with. And so as a parent, I'm constantly thinking, well, are my children safe? Um, what about my job situation? Is that going to change? What about my work? What about my business? So we're dealing with those same pressures but we're also having to shoulder um, some of the ch challenges that our community is facing and be there for them uh, and be a source of, of comfort uh, and support while not getting burnt out, as, as Reverend Streets mentioned. Um, I think we talk a lot about self-care, um, and I, I don't know how the experience of my colleagues have, has been like, but personally, it's just conceptual. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to find opportunities to actually uh, do it in a meaningful way because you're just putting out fires and making sure um, that you're there for everyone. And the last thing that I'll mention is the mental health component. Um, I have just been, perhaps it's because I deal with the younger population, uh, but I think I think it's not limited to young people. I think there's so many people who are dealing with issues of anxiety, depression, um, uh, some of which may have been undiagnosed prior to COVID, um, but it really has come to the forefront. And the, for me, the challenge of pastoral care has really been exposed. On, and, and I hope that's something we can explore. You know, as an imam, I can be there for them spiritually, but I'm also not equipped to handle the mental health component. 
And so I'm trying to do the best that I can, but I'm also feeling my own limitations. Your, your comment reminded me that it's important for clergy to have referral sources to refer people uh, for, for help. Um, I'm also a clinical social worker, and I'm very much aware of the stress and anxiety and depression and the, uh, that people are undergoing. And also, as you said, Iman, being very intentional about my, my own self-care, um, my prayer and meditational life has taken a different depth under the current ethos that we've all, uh, we're all uh, dealing with. So, but I do know of clergy who are so stressed out uh, because of, 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 of conditions that were there, like you said, before the pandemic. I know clergy who are on the border of losing their congregations because the, the money isn't there, because the congregation is not able to give at the same level as before, so bills are not being met. That's, that's an additional stress on, on some clergy. And... Um, the stress that we feel when we can't visit people in a hospital or you're trying to put together a meaningful memorial at, and can conduct it at the cemetery, which is very different than doing it in a mosque or synagogue or parish. So there's so many dimensions to where the stress factors come in. And I want to continue conversation on this, but we need to take a short break at this moment. From Connecticut Public Radio, you're listening to Where We Live. I'm Diane Orson, and today for Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll return in a few minutes and continue talking about what it's like for faith leaders amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Don't go away. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Diane Orson in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guests today are Rabbi Stacy Offner of Temple Beth Tikva in Madison, Dr. Jerry Street, senior pastor at Dixwell Congregational Church in New Haven and former chaplain at Yale University, and Imam Rafai Arafin of the Islamic Association of Greater Hartford, also known as the Berlin Mosque in Berlin, Connecticut. We've been talking this hour about what it's like to be a faith leader during a pandemic. And I'd like to dig a little deeper right now into issues of grief, loss, and trauma. Grief and loss can feel especially acute during this period of the holidays. And I'm wondering if you've lost congregants to COVID, what that type of pastoral care has been like, how you deal with the ongoing stress of loss that's more broad than even just human life. People have lost jobs and they've lost a sense of their normal routines. How, what's, what's all this been like for you? Rabbi Offner, I'll start with you. Your, your, your description, Diane, of, 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 of all those experiences uh, puts me right in that place. Um, that is so very, very challenging because fundamentally uh, at the deepest root of all this is our ability to, to connect. And then when we lose, how do we connect? And the way that in, in Jewish life, I know the, the way we respond to loss is uh, through rituals that give us the opportunity to come together. And it's automatic. People know what they're supposed to do. And what they're supposed to do is be present. 
and you're, you're present at a funeral, you're present at a burial, you're present in people's homes, you're present with your hugs, and, and all that has been taken away. And I have to tell you personally that the, the pain of death has not been as painful to witness as the pain of loved ones who can't be with their own loved ones when they die. That mm. is excruciating. We are taught that, that, that God's very presence, God lives in the connection from one human being to another. And we just can't uh, overestimate the, the pain that is caused from, from separation. And so for, for us as, as, as pastors and ministers and rabbis and moms, I, I think what the first thing we need to do is, is, is be present in that pain and recognize it and cry and, and weep. And, um, and then we have to be creative in how we are with people. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, one of the craziest, most beautiful things that we've been able to do when we do a virtual funeral is to have people be able to come to that funeral from all over the world. They're able to be present. And that is a gift to a mourner. Another little thing, uh, you know, the, the vehicle and a Zoom call of the chat. And, and that I have learned as the rabbi to say to people, put a word in the chat, say a name in the chat, and we'll pray for that person. And uh, it, 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 it's a way, it's a way, it's a way through technology that we can be together because at the end of the day, being together is, is consolation and is comfort and is hope. It is like we're experiencing a global collective trauma at this moment. And um, I wonder, Reverend Streets, you and I have talked a bit about trauma-informed ministries. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, uh, both my colleagues, uh, Rabbi and Iman, have, have referred to this, is that as we deal with the immediate situation and think about the future, the impact of the, the grief and loss is going to evidence itself uh, slowly and over, over, over how many years to come, we're not sure. And so the extent to which that we as uh, religious leaders can be informed by the general mental health community about the nature of trauma and its impact on people uh, physically and emotionally, uh, the more we are aware of that, we can think about how we use the resources of our traditions, of our rituals, of our prayers, our, our texts, our preaching, our, you know, integrated in such a way that it could be a source for people as they interact with the different dimensions of our congregational life. So being trauma-informed um, is, is a way to, uh, to filter what we do. But there's also a reciprocal relationship. The, the mental health community's contribution to us from a, a mental health standpoint also needs the contribution we bring as religious leaders 
to the spiritual side of of people's resilience and understanding. So it's not a it's not a matter of clergy becoming more secular um, psychologists, but but to have a healthy dialogue and partnership with the basic concepts of mental health. And and but the thing about it is that but the three communities that we represent, the faith communities that that we represent on this in this conversation. We have a history. We know our people have gone through horrific times in history, traumatic times, great losses um, of religious oppression and ethnic cleansing and of, of all kinds. And so we have something to offer because we've made it through those moments um, um, from our history and our traditions. But we will be, I think, further enabled to be effective because we are learning more now about the impact of trauma. Imam Arafin, it's been a roller coaster year with additional stressors uh, in 2020 besides the pandemic. This uh, incredibly consequential and divisive presidential election, issues that you referred to earlier of racial injustice and prejudice. I'm wondering, on top of what we've just discussed, how have these additional stressors affected the way you lead your congregation? I think it's affected the congregation in different ways and not everybody to the same extent. You know, for some people, it's easy to say that the strife that's going on in this country um, is political. And if you think that it's just political, then that itself is indicative that you're coming at it from a place of privilege because there are a lot of people who experience bias and prejudice on a daily basis. Um, and it's not political for them. It affects their ability um, to have access to employment. It affects their interactions with others, their coworkers, um, and most saliently with law enforcement. Um, and so we do have African-American uh, and black uh, congregants as part of our community. And so, it's been a challenge for me since since I'm not black, I'm not African-American um, to make sure that I can be a source of strength for them that they can lean on, even though I haven't necessarily experienced what they've experienced. Um, and, and then add on top of that, the vitriol that comes along with being Muslim in America these days. Um, you know, I, I joke with some of our African-Americans, you know, I said, you guys have to worry about driving while black. I have to worry about, uh, you know, flying while Muslim. And some of you have to deal with both of them. So just stick to walking or something. Um, you know, so, so, you know, they're, they're kind of getting it from, and, 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 and for, for female Muslims and, and especially uh, female African-American Muslims, I can't, I can't imagine the level of prejudice that they experience because unfortunately uh, we've, We've kind of have to, the, the, the point that we're in politically as a country has forced us to take a hard look in the mirror as a country and as a society, um, as to where we are right now at this point in time and where we want to go. Um, and I think that there are legitimate debates that we can have politically, um, and, and we're always going to have different views politically, and, and that's completely fine. But religion is about seeing a person at a spiritual level. You know, God says in the Quran, 
وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي آدَمِ That we have ennobled each and every child of, of Adam. Right? So the idea is that there's God-given divine dignity that attends to being a member of humanity. And I think that's shared in Christianity, Judaism, and many other faiths, if not all of them. And so I think there is a place for religion to address hatred and prejudice and bias and all of those isms and just try to unpack all of that and simplify things and say when, when we meet each other as people, we should meet each other on a spiritual level. We should see each other as souls. I think once we talk, once spirituality is allowed to enter into the public discourse and talk to people about the issues that our society is facing, I think it's going to cause a lot of healing. And I hope that that does happen. I've been deeply touched and impressed by how adaptive and resilient members of a congregation are. And I, I try to talk about practicing faith as a skill. It's a skill for living. It's not just ideology, if you will, or a doctrine or, or a concept, but how do you put it into to, to action that affects your thinking, your feelings, and your behavior? Those three components, that, that spirituality then becomes a skill, a way that you, you, that you use uh, in, in, living, uh, in living every day. We're talking today about what it's like to be a faith leader at this moment. I'm Diane Orson, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. You're listening to Where We Live. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in just a few minutes to talk about self-care and how faith leaders are managing to take care of themselves and where they turn for joy or serenity during this moment. Stay with us. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Diane Orson in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Joining me today via Zoom are Dr. Frederick Street, senior pastor at Dixwell Congregational Church in New Haven and former chaplain at Yale University, Imam Rafai Arafin of the Islamic Association of Greater Hartford, also known as the Berlin Mosque in Berlin, Connecticut, and Rabbi Stacy Offner of Temple Beth Tikva in Madison, Connecticut. We've been talking this hour about what it's like to be a faith leader amid the pandemic and at this moment. Now I'd like to turn to each of you and talk about what you do for your own self-care. Who wants to start? I'll start. Uh, when I think about self-care, one of the most important things, and it becomes a great concern as we head into January, but one of the things that I have been very conscious about doing is spending as much time outside as possible. And so uh, nature has been a healer. Uh, we are blessed, our synagogue community, we're, we're on the shoreline. And so uh, we've been able to, in the summer months, we've been able to have outdoor services to take in the beauty of the world around us, uh, the water, uh, try, to, try to visit the, the, the water as much as I possibly, possibly can. And that, that becomes more challenging 
uh, as, as the weather gets colder and colder. The other is, is in relationships. And I, I thank God every day that I have a partner in life and uh, am blessed to be able to have that personal connection 24-7. And it pains me to think about the people who, uh, you know, we've talked about grief but um, and, and, and death, uh, literal death, but there's also just basic loneliness. And the loneliness is so profound. So uh, uh, I, I try to be grateful personally for, for what I have in companionship. Uh, we, we have a puppy and she means the world and more than I ever realized. Uh, and then I, I have to tell you, you know, in, in Judaism, uh, our great symbol of life itself is uh, wine. And we hold up the, the, the Kiddush cup, the, the, the wine glass, and we say l'chaim, to life. And uh, we've been doing that a lot lately. Uh, probably on a daily basis we do that. And actually, it makes me curious to hear from the imam, because I believe that um, that, that they don't have that similar recourse in their tradition. And I wonder how he, uh, he works with that. <laughs> My answer is a little bit ironic. Um, you know, the, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he said that, you know, a child is the fruit of the heart. And probably the thing that stresses me out the most in life are my two children, my seven-year-old son and my five-year-old daughter. But they're also probably the, my, my go-to in terms of self-care um, because there's nothing that kind of relaxes you more than having a conversation with a seven-year-old or a five-year-old <laughs> uh, <laughs> in, which, in which you get weird kind of scenarios. Like my son will ask me, well, what if you know, all the phones in the world stop working? Then what will we do? Um, and so, <laughs> <laughs> great question. <laughs> and it's so great. You know, when you talk about the kids, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you too, our, our building, we're under construction, but our education wing is still open and we have a preschool at our synagogue and those kids are a lifeline. And in my, in my office, um, you can actually see I have windows behind me and I, open those windows because we have a playground in the back. And I just very intentionally open those windows to hear the voices of those preschool children. So uh, well, I don't have children at home. So to the imam, it's, oh my goodness, talk about, yes, stress and blessing. Absolutely. And, and it's been a reminder of that, especially during the period in which we were trying to put on the hat of playing teacher. Uh, without really being equipped to do so. So, but it also created like a new depth in that re parent child relationship because children need their parents to be present. And I don't think we've ever been this present before in terms of just raw amounts of time. Um, but that, that thought aside, um, you know, we also have about 400 students in our, in our weekend school at the mosque. And my job is to know most of them their names, their families, what they do, what their interests are. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it also, just being around kids, being my, around my own children, puts life into perspective 
Um, and it, it forces you to examine what really matters, what's really important. And I think staying grounded, being vulnerable, um, and not trying to always put on a strong face um, is actually what makes you stronger. Because trying to pretend that you know the sky is not falling, a lot of people tried that at the beginning of the COVID crisis. And I don't think that worked out very well. I think just having good communication, talking about what you're going through, it works for our congregation and it also works for faith leaders. So having that outlet, the challenge for self-care, um, especially if you don't have wine as a go-to, mm-hmm. um, can be that, well, who do faith leaders go to? We have an office phone for the mosque. Nobody uses it. Everybody has my cell phone. They just call my cell, right? <laughs> Why would they listen, you know, leave a message on a voicemail if they can reach me right away? Um, that's part of the job, right? And well, who do I go to if, if I'm feeling down or if I'm feeling overwhelmed? In many cases, it's, it's really colleagues and friends. And part of COVID is that we've come to realize who our closest people are, you know? And then, you know, when you have a friend who reaches out to you, checks in on you um, and really asks you, um, you know, directly, you know, how are you doing? How are you holding up um, in, 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 a, in a deeper and more meaningful way? It really touches the heart. Um, and then it, it makes you appreciate that person in a deeper way and appreciate life. Like Rabbi uh, often mentioned that part of, uh, of, of, of being a person is like, you know, that tradition of l'chaim, you know, to life and enjoying and celebrating. There's a verse in the Quran that as to the bounty and the gifts of your Lord, rejoice in them. So there is a value in, 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 in the midst of all of this loss, celebrating what we do have and what we haven't lost. And that's each other. Yeah. I, I find that, that, um, Every day is is a, 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 an opportunity for continual growth, and one has to try to cultivate being aware of how. Well, let me put it personally. Uh, for me, self care is being aware of what I'm thinking, and how I'm feeling, and how those two things are influencing the actions I take. Um, but I'm also mindful of how my congregation, members of my congregation are also my teachers. And so I learn from them about how they are coping. And I remind myself that whatever pastoral guidance or encouragement or suggestion I give to them, I need to also give it to myself. <laughs> uh, that we're, we're not separate from them in, 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 in the sense that we're all saying about a mutual experience of, of self-care and struggling. So being very intentional and, and aware of of, uh, of doing something along the lines that my colleagues have said is very important to me. Uh, food, <laughs> hopefully not uh, not just junk food, though I've had my moments of in front of the TV for several <laughs> hours with a big, you know, big bag of potato chips. Um, uh, but... Uh, not, not feeling guilty for wanting to take care of myself. It's, it's, it's be surprised how how many people, particularly in the helping professions like ministry, uh, people feel guilty <laughs> um, for for. I, I tell people that self care is not the same as 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 selfishness. Uh, so 
um, reminding myself about that, the exercise that Rabbi mentioned, trying to get outside as much as I can, music and, and poetry, um, are very uh, nourishing to me, having friends and colleagues that uh, I speak with. And in our tradition, uh, wine is also uh, allowed, uh, with moderation, of course. Uh, and so a, a glass of wine occasionally uh, is, is important. And I'm learning new ways of, of self-care every day as I pay attention to what gives me a sense of peace and calm uh, and pleasure, if you will, um, and uh, meditation and prayer, reading, uh, this, you know, this, an eclectic uh, array of things that feeds my, feeds my soul. We have just a few moments left before we're going to have to wrap up, but this may be somewhat intrusive to ask, but I need to, to ask at a moment of such difficulty when so many converging pressures are upon all of us, um, does your faith ever waver? I mean, do you ever struggle with your own faith? I'll 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 answer that because I I think that's a that's a softball of a question. <laughs> the answer is yeah, all all the time. And uh, uh, faith faith isn't uh, faith is about questions and faith is about doubts and faith is about struggle and so when those things go away i don't think you have faith i think then you then i mean that's why we call it faith it's it's its own category of things that 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 transcend two plus two equals four um so yeah struggle that's a that's a good thing i think that's healthy I, and I, I would agree. I'd sometimes say to myself and other people that the struggle for faith is in itself an act of faith. Um, hmm. So it's it's not absolute being concrete. It's having that vulnerability that, that the Iman mentioned earlier. The, the, the theology that I come, uh, the community out of which I come constantly reminds me that we are no different than the people we serve. The struggles are no different. We're all under the same... Um, cloud of humanity struggling to live meaningfully and to support one another. So the moment I, I, I find myself trying to think that somehow I'm different from the people that I'm working with, that's a, that's a, quick, that's a quick check, you know. <laughs> and, um, and sometimes the people I work with are in better shape than I am. And I tell them that. And I, I learn from them and say, you know, you're helping me. And that's, that's okay. I really want to echo uh, Reverend Streets and what he said. I think that humility and faith are intertwined. You know, arrogance is is diametrically opposed to faith, right? Because part of of understanding that God is sublime and that He is transcendent is understanding that the human being is, as I mentioned earlier, is contingent upon God and and utterly dependent and in need of, uh, you know. He is independent of, of all wants and all needs. Um, and so approaching faith with humility, I think, is so important. And, and as a faith leader, you want to be an example. And, and showing your vulnerability doesn't show. And the fact that you're dealing with these crises of faith doesn't show weakness of faith, but rather it shows that your faith is evolving and that you're learning as you experience life 
as it should be experienced. Our definition of faith is that it's something that takes hold in the heart. It is embraced by the mind. It's then articulated by the tongue. And finally, it's carried out by the limbs. And so you need to be fully engaged in your actions, in your deeds, in your spirit. Um, but also, it can't be blind faith. It can't be something which you force yourself to believe in. It, 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 it's part of faith is acceptance. And part of that acceptance is understanding that the events that happen to you do have a divine wisdom behind them. And you may not always know what that divine wisdom is. And so part of faith is that uncovering and the, and the joy of, of not knowing and embracing your, your imperfection as a human being and that there's beauty in that imperfection. And once you accept that and embrace it, then I, I feel like that only causes your faith to, to grow and increase from there. Well, we're going to have to end here. I want to thank you all for such a thoughtful and honest and really inspiring hour. Rafai Arafin is imam at the Islamic Association of Greater Hartford, also known as the Berlin Mosque in Berlin, Connecticut. Reverend Jerry Streets is senior pastor at Dixwell Congregational Church in New Haven and a former chaplain at Yale University. And Stacy Offner is the rabbi at Temple Beth Tikva in Madison, Connecticut. Thank you all so much. Thank you, and blessings on a new calendar year. Thank you, and indeed, yes, uh, blessings on a new calendar year. Amen to that. Thank you, God's blessings, and peace be with everyone. Today's show is produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Check out wnpr.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Diane Orson. Thanks for listening.